personal finance expert, Andrew Hallam, is the author of Millionaire Teacher and Millionaire Expat. The Canadian is famous for building up a million-dollar portfolio of low-cost stock and bond index funds on a teacher's salary. Since retiring from teaching in Singapore in 2014, he now blogs about his experiences and delivers talks to investors across the globe. While he is currently grounded in his native Canada as the world observes movement restrictions amid COVID-19, the personal finance author is still keen to share his message to follow a diversified, low-cost investment strategy. What's unique about Mr. Hallam's method is that he shows investors how to manage their money or how to find a suitable financial advisor who won't charge ridiculous fees. With many investors keen to enter the markets following the crash and partial recovery amid the pandemic, Mr. Hallam's strategy is simple. First, build a globally diversified portfolio of low-cost index exchange-traded funds. Second, invest regularly without speculating. And third, increase the amount you invest over time as your salary increases. So how can novice investors follow his lead? What do they need to put in place to start their DIY investment journey? And how much attention should they pay to the current volatility? Welcome to Pocketful of Dirhams. I'm Alice Hayne, the personal finance editor of The National, and joining me today is the man himself, personal finance author, Andrew Hallam. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Wow, thank you for the warm invitation. It's a pleasure to be on the show, Alice. Thank you. Now, I've been to a couple of your talks over the years, Andrew. You do come into the UAE quite a lot and talk in Dubai and Abu Dhabi. And like many residents in the UAE, I also follow a portfolio of exchange-traded funds. So when did you start investing and when did you become a millionaire? I started investing when I was 19 and I was inspired by a a mechanic, actually, a self-made millionaire who built his millionaire status on a mechanic's salary. So I worked at a, at a bus depot and I was paying for my own college fees. And this guy really inspired me. And he said, you've, you've really got to start investing as soon as possible because of the effects of compounding money. And so I started when I was 19. So when did you actually become a millionaire then, Andrew? I think it was sometime in my late 30s. And it really wasn't a, a big deal. It wasn't something that I was... You know, I noticed on any given day, I, I suppose my investment portfolio would have been flirting with that seven-figure number and then at some point then crossed it and, and, and didn't drop down below it. But it was, the actual day didn't really mean all that much to me, Alice, to be honest. And it wasn't a case that you were suddenly out there buying the latest sports car and flashing your cash. No. You were just carrying on as normal. Yeah, exactly. I, I think I was probably about 37 years old when, it, when, when the portfolio would have crossed a million dollars for the first time. So for those who want to follow your lead, can you talk us through your strategy and why it works? Well, it's based on Nobel Prize winning research. Um, it's not based on sales rhetoric, which most of the financial services industry is based on. So it's based on peer-reviewed um, financial economic research. And so, so many Nobel Prize winners have just said for years and years and years, if you want to beat the vast majority of investment professionals, all you really need to do is build a diversified, low-cost investment portfolio whereby you do no speculating. You own a product called 
or a series of products called exchange traded funds, which give you global diversification. You add to them whenever you have the money. You don't try to speculate or time the market. And based on how the markets work, you will end up outperforming at least 90% of investment professionals after fees. And so this isn't just, again, sales rhetoric from me. This is Nobel Prize winning research that's been peer reviewed and time tested decade after decade after decade. And so when looking at the probabilities of beating 90% of uh, financial professionals after fees and knowing that I could do this without any work on my own, I mean, I spend probably, Alice, uh, 15 minutes on my investment portfolio a year and no, no more than that. So when I found it, it was really this easy. It was just something that I continued to do and will continue to do. So where has financial advice gone wrong? I mean, you talked about fees there, and that is the problem, high fees. Is it all about high fees, or has there been other issues in the past with people receiving poor financial advice? Yeah, there are two, there are, there are two aspects or two things that really do drag down performance. And one is, one is speculation. And so speculation would be somebody trying to figure out uh, how the markets are going to move based on COVID or based on unemployment figures or based on GDP or based on what they think is going to be a hot stock or based on what they think is going to be a country to avoid or a country to jump into. And most people do this. It's, it's something that's all, it, there's an inherent component within all of us to want to do this. And so the financial service industry really lets you do this. It's, it's, basically geared such that they want to sell you specific products and make you believe that somebody can see the future, that somebody can dance in and out of certain sectors or certain stocks and perform really well on your behalf. Um, Peer-reviewed academic evidence suggests that this is highly, highly improbable and especially after investment fees. So even Warren Buffett, who's known as history's greatest stock picker, when he dies, he's instructed that his estate on behalf of his wife, his personal estate will be invested in a low cost portfolio of index funds because he too knows the probability of that outperforming the vast majority of professionals. But we have to remember that the financial service industry is not a giant philanthropic organization. It exists to make money for itself and it's one of, if not the most profitable industry in the world. Its profitability doesn't come from it investing money. Its profitability comes from it extracting, extracting fees, extracting charges when we, when we exchange currencies or we move money from one bank to the next or when we purchase uh, an actively managed mutual fund or a hedge fund or we employ some kind of active trader to invest our money. So the fees that are associated with the industry is what makes money for the industry. It's what fuels the big banks. It's what fuels um, the entire the entire financial services industry. So it's in their interests to continue to do this. However, it's on the flip side, it's in the investor's interest to know that this takes place. And it's in the investor's interest to know that there is, statistically speaking, a far, far better way to invest money for your future. With that in mind, then, because obviously you're saying uh, you should, you know, technically the issue comes down to timing because people always ask about timing, don't they? When should I enter the market? 
obviously with the kind of big crash that we've saw, we've seen, and then the partial recovery, I expect you've been asked a lot recently, you know, is now a good time because the market has crashed? How do you answer that question? Because what you're saying then is that timing is irrelevant. Is that right? The best time to invest your money is as soon as you have it. That's the best time to invest it. So if I had inherited $5 million today, uh, I would I would invest it all tomorrow. And when if you have a lump sum, the idea is to get it into the markets as soon as you can. And then as you're earning an income, if you have a salary, to take as much as you can afford each month and continue to add that to the pot of your investment portfolio over time. The, the challenge, of course, with when we look at First of all, the notion that can somebody actually time the market? Can somebody actually sit on a big pile of cash and jump in when they think just before they think the market's going to rise and then pull that money out before they think the market's going to fall and then push that money back in at a really opportune time? Um, This is generally a fallacy. So occasionally there have been people who have got lucky with a prediction but as John Bogle likes to say, he doesn't know anyone who's predicted the market moves two times in a row. And so what happens is it's much like going into a casino. One of the worst things that could happen is you win on the very first try. Um, the casino odds are stacked fully against you. And if you win the first time you go into the casino, it's likely that you're going to want to go back in. And eventually, you're going to end up giving the money back. And that's exactly the same with the market timing concept. So we almost need to put a a Zen-like, Buddha-like, evidence-based mask on, control our emotions and say, here are the statistical probabilities. I need to invest money as soon as I have the money and then continue to add to it if I have a job. Okay. So how do people start? I mean, do they read your book? Do they read your blog? Or is it simpler than that? I would say it's not simpler than that. Um, and, and it's very easy for me to say, all you do is buy this and buy this. There's, there's, there's true danger in that because if somebody is going to buy something because I say they should, then that same person is just as susceptible then to somebody else suggesting that they should go with actively managed products. So it's really easy for someone to say, if I were on the flip side, and um, I were the seller of actively managed funds. I were in the, spi- in the financial services industry. And someone came to me and they said, um, hey, I've just been told to invest in this portfolio of index funds. What I would do if I were in the financial service industry is I'd say, okay, well, here's how a portfolio of index funds has performed. And here is how a series of hand-picked actively managed products that I as a salesperson or a financial advisor could have sold you instead. Look at how much more money I would have made you. And I would show them legitimate charts of funds that have outperformed the indexes. What's really, really important to understand is that you don't take anyone's word for anything. So I firmly believe that when you're putting your future into something, when we're looking at your retirement prospects, It's so essential that you take some time to understand why this process works. And so to do that, 
it's a really great idea to dig through some materials and start to educate yourself. So I would recommend something like Burton Malkiel's book. It's called A Random Walk Down Wall Street. I would recommend John Bogle's book, uh, The Little Book of Common Sense Investing. I, I wrote a book called Millionaire Teacher, uh, the second edition of which was published in 2017. And I wrote a book called Millionaire Expat. Um, the latest edition was published in 2018, and then there's Kindle versions uh, that, that I updated on uh, on May of this year. But the, the the important part is to pick up something on low cost index funds and see how the markets work. How and why do we want to pick a portfolio of index funds? How and why can be we be tricked? And how and why can we be knocked off our perch? So I've had friends who have told me that they've invested with in with index funds with, via Vanguard because someone told them to do it. So one of my best friends, in fact, for he met a guy, an old guy that he worked with, who took him aside, his very first job, put his arm around him and said, hey, listen, Nathan, I, I want to talk to you about index funds. I want to talk to you about Vanguard. Let's share and have lunch. And so he told Nathan how Nathan should be investing, essentially echoing what I've been writing about in my books and in the talks. And Nathan did that for a number of years, perhaps seven or eight years. And then he met a representative from another financial services company who actually talked him out of it and talked him into some more expensive products. Now, the unfortunate thing for Nathan is that he didn't have a very strong financial background or understanding of why specifically he needed to be buying these products and how not to be fooled by somebody who came along and said, Nathan, here are charts of funds that have beaten your index funds. And guess what, Nathan? I own these and they've beaten your indexes. So I think you really ought to be listening to me and my advice. And so that's why I really believe that it takes not necessarily a lot of time. Something like Burton Malkiel's A Random Walk Down Wall Street might take, uh, might take six or seven hours to read through and to read through slowly. But I do think it's really important that people gain that background of understanding. Yes, I agree. You should always understand what you're actually investing into. So, so once you've gained that understanding, um, what's the next state, step? If you want to then enter the, you know, you want to get going on this, is it kind of making sure you've got enough money to actually invest? You know, we've got a lot of people losing jobs or having their salary cut at the moment. Uh, so is this a time to be investing if you don't have enough cash to pay the regular bills? And, and I would say, no, not if you don't have enough cash to pay the regular bills. And so one great rule of thumb is that we really should always keep six, three to six months worth of living expenses aside for any kind of emergency that can come up. You know, when people see that anything can happen, um, it, it can be a bit of a wake up call. So I would suggest if anyone had high interest debts, so credit card debts, for example, that are charging anything, any kind of debt, I would say that's charging above, say, uh, five or 6% per year, I would try to pay that off before investing, make sure that people have three to six months worth of living expenses set aside before investing. The mortgage question, mortgage rates are typically quite low at this, at, at this, at this juncture. And so People could take their time a little bit paying off the mortgage. Um, again, that's going to be up to them, but it's generally not such a bad thing to not put 
all of your resources and to try and hammer that mortgage down as quickly as possible. That's not the same kind of debt because mortgage interest rates are charging less than 6% per year. Again, it depends though, Alice, on people's personalities. Some people, they just hate having debt and they want to hammer away at a mortgage. If that's what they want to do, they actually end up taking the principal down faster when the interest rates lower anyway. So that part of it is really up to their personality. Okay, so having that sort of safety net of an emergency fund set aside. So then once they decide to get into the markets, what, what's the next thing that they should be doing? Is it a case of finding the right brokerage to access exchange traded funds or should they turn to an advisory company or perhaps a robo-advisor? Right. So dependent on the person's personality. And so as, as I wrote in the book, the one of the most challenging parts really is the psychological component. Um, everybody, almost everybody, about, about 90% of people believe they're better looking than the average person. Um, about 90% of people believe that they drive better than the average person. And of course, we know that's a fallacy. And, and it's much the same with investing. When you show people how to build a portfolio of exchange traded index funds, and it really is simple. Most people say, oh, I can absolutely do that. That's a piece of cake. And, and I step back when in the very beginning when I started writing about this in the early 2000s, I didn't think anyone should need a financial advisor. I thought this was really simple. But over the past 20 years of following people through the process, I've seen so many people who were just great advocates for staying the course, building a diversified portfolio, not speculating. Uh, I've seen many people who are great advocates for this philosophy who claim that they could fully do this on their own. I saw so many of them end up getting really fearful when things went south. And, and when I say when things went south, um, I'm talking about something really significant. I'm not saying um, that some people listening to this can say, hey, I know it went down for three months during COVID, so I can handle this. My thing is, well, wait a second here. Um, from say 2000 until 2010, we had a decade where if you had an investment portfolio without any bonds and it was just diversified in a bunch of ETFs or in, even into a bunch of uh, obviously actively managed uh, stock market funds as well, you wouldn't have made money. I mean, the odds are that you would have gone 10 years without making money. And when people feel that, it's like me asking you, how would you respond if you got cancer? And people will try and tell me how they'll respond, but they won't have a clue. And so here, this is the challenge. And so many people, fortunately, many people have said, you know what? All right, I get it. Not everybody can do this emotionally. And so let's have a look at a robo-advisor. So let's have a look at a group where like in the UAE, you have a group like Sarwa. And yes, the fees with Sarwa are going to be higher than if you do this on your own. However, the emotional component is far easier because Sarwa would act as your gatekeeper. So if at some point, let's say you haven't made money for five or six years and you're really thinking of pulling out or speculating on something, at least you have a gatekeeper, somebody there to try to talk you off the you know, away from the ledge with your personal money. Likewise, if you have, especially some really high net worth people who have very complex financial situations that really might need a lot of help with bringing in other aspects of their financial lives, like perhaps a business that they own, looking at estate planning, looking at taxable situations, they too might need some kind of guidance. So they might require a full service 
financial advisory firm who doesn't just manage the money for them, but looks after the entire wealth management picture for them. So helps them with the accounting, helps them with the legal frameworks of perhaps what might end up being more of a complicated structure. Those are options. And, you know, um, a robo-advisor, I, I agree with you, would be a great option for someone who's, who just can't kind of hold their nerve through all the ups and downs. But for somebody who really does want to go their own way, how do they pick the right exchange-traded funds for them? I mean, your book has different portfolios for different categories of people. Can you talk us through that a little bit? One of the things, so what I did with the, with the book and with the model portfolios is I looked at something that's globally diversified. And so for me as a Canadian, I would want something that had a slight bias to my home country future market. And, and the reason is that I would, want a, I would want to take less currency risk. And so I would want to have, it's almost like a hedge towards my, my future currency or the currency that I'll be paying my future dollars, my, my future grocery bills in, my future, um, generally my future cost of living. So for me as a Canadian, um, I would do what, mo- what most Canadians would do and what most, most financial advisors in Canada would suggest. And it would be a Canadian bond market index for the stability a global stock market index for the diversification and a Canadian stock market index that gives me that reduction in currency risk. So if I were a Brit, I would have a British bond market index, a global stock market index, and a British stock market index. So very simple, very small number of ETFs to invest in. Very simple. And and some people prefer to have just two. So especially many of the Brits in the UAE really do prefer to have just two ETFs, a global stock ETF and a global bond ETF. So again, full global diversification without any kind of a home country bias. And there's really nothing wrong with that, regardless whether you choose to have that home country bias such as I prefer or not and go fully global. Long term, over the length of your lifetime, it's not going to make a really big difference. So this is not an argument that anyone should die on the cross over. Okay. And how do you decide how much to allocate to bonds and how much to allocate to equities? It's entirely dependent on your tolerance for volatility. And so the uh, Interesting studies are suggesting that if we go long-term, stocks beat bonds easily if we go long-term. So if you go and look at a a global stock market index compared to a a global bond market index, over over historically over 30-year rolling periods, the portfolio that is allocated 100% to stocks easily beats the portfolio allocated 100% to bonds. However, there are time periods where this blending of the two will actually beat a riskier full stock portfolio. So we could take an example of, say, 60% global stocks and 40% bonds, and we could compare that to 100% global stocks. And we could go back to all the way back to 1995, So from 1995 
to 2020. We have a 25-year span here. Ironically, the more conservative portfolio of 60% global stocks and 40% global bonds actually outperformed 100% global stocks. Having said all that, it's not likely that it will always continue to. It's likely that over a period of 30 years, 35, 40, that the higher the component in stocks, the higher the returns, but the higher also the volatility. And so what people have to do is they have to recognize what their personal tolerance for risk is. Do they want higher returns? And if so, they should go with a higher allocation of stocks than bonds. That said, there can be periods where that doesn't pay off for 25 years. And so that's a long time for someone to wait for a higher risk approach to pay off. It can take up to that period of time. So we have that example of 1995 to 2020. So people have to be really honest with themselves. Will they freak out if their portfolio moves up and down a lot? And if it will, then it's pro then if they do, it's probably best that they pick a bond allocation that will help to temper the volatility of the market so or the volatility of the portfolio. So something like a split between 70% stocks and 30% bonds, that's a fairly popular allocation, or 60% stocks, 40% bonds. That's another very popular allocation. And how do you stay consistent? I mean, how do you stay on track and keep investing? I mean, you often advise investing quarterly, but how do you keep doing that? Well, I think I advise people, to, if, if possible, to invest monthly and to, to get to get into the habit of that. I would say only quarterly if the, the fees ended up being substantial and the people didn't have, um, the investor didn't have a lot of money to be adding. So for example, let's say you only have, or you can only save $200 a month. Um, if you're trying to invest monthly and you're paying between a six and a $20 commission on a $200 purchase, this still, it's a pretty big chunk of your, investment that you're actually paying in some, in a brokerage commission to make the purchase. So in a situation like that, the person might want to save up enough money such that they could, let's say, invest quarterly. Um, the commission would basically be the same, but the commission as a percentage of what they're investing would end up being less. The, the important part is at the, the beginning, I think, the beginning of every calendar year that the investor sits down with themselves if they're single or with their partner if they have a partner and make a plan and say okay here's our goal here's how much we are going to commit to putting away every month or every quarter for this investment portfolio come rain or shine we're going to go for it obviously if you have job loss and and income dries up you're going to have to stop doing that and suspend that but as long as the income is there, just to set it very, very regularly, just like brushing your teeth. So what's the ultimate goal, though? What, what's, what are we ultimately striving for with this strategy? Are we talking financial independence, retire, you know, early retirement like yourself? What, what, where are we going with this? Well, I think everybody would have a different goal. Um, ultimately, I think if you are an expat, and I'm assuming most of your listeners probably are expatriates, they're not contributing to their home country social platforms. And so as a result of that, 
if they're not going to get a defined benefit pension um, or a lot from their government because they're working overseas, they need to build some kind of financial stability or a portfolio that's large enough that they can actually live on. And so they need to be aware of building this investment portfolio. And that's a really good question you ask too, Alice, because some people will ask, well, when do you sell it? As if at some magical point in the future, you you build up a, a million pounds or 500,000 pounds or whatever it is, and then magically decide, well, I'm, I'm done now. I've done it. I've built my nest egg and I sell it. The the idea is that you you never sell more than an inflation-adjusted Four percent per year from the portfolio after you retire. So this gives you the highest statistical odds that this money will last at least a thirty-year investment duration. So essentially, you're trying to buy yourself a pension or build yourself a pension that will enable you to live on it for the rest of your life. And that's quite a goal. Have your finances been affected by the pandemic? Would you like to learn how to invest on your own? Send us your stories and questions to pf at the national.ae. And remember, PF stands for personal finance. Which brings us on to a question from a listener. This is from MM in Dubai. And he says, I want to take charge of my investments. I literally know nothing about the markets. And in the past, I have used financial advisory companies that charged me fees to manage my investments, but in my opinion, did nothing. So how do I make the switch to relying on myself? To be honest, I simply don't want to learn how to invest in the market. So is there another way to access them or do I need to put in the hard work? And that kind of brings us back around to what you were saying earlier on, which is you do need to put in the hard work. You do need to understand what you're investing in. Is that right? Yes, to a point for sure, Alice, for sure. I think even if somebody decides they're going to go with a robo-advisor, I think it's really important that they know why and how. Why is that a good option? And and how does it work? So why is that? And how is that better than the alternative where that many expats end up falling into with these structured savings plans that are so prolifically sold throughout the Middle East? So for MM, um, I like the fact that as an investor, MM has decided that they understand themselves and they understand that they really don't want to do it on their own, but they recognize how they're really going nowhere with these really expensive uh, financial services companies. So in this case, a robo-advisor would be great, but I believe that they should do some reading uh, just to understand the hows and the whys. They would use that financial uh, robo-advisory group because that is really important. And, and I don't think that has to be a lot of hard work. It could just be Charlie Ellis's book, Elements of Investing, one of my books like Millionaire Teacher, um, John Bogle's book, Common Sense and Investing. Okay, so you know, get, get to grips with what you're actually investing in. That, that's the key message here, isn't it? Don't just rely on somebody else. Exactly. Understand. And then by all means, rely on them, but understand how it all works because that's essential. So I have to ask, I mean, you, you've retired from your profession as a teacher and you know, you're giving these talks around the, the world. Do you still actually invest yourself? I do. So I continue to add money. Now, my money doesn't come in as regularly as it did when I was a teacher because obviously I was paid every month, but I'm still writing. So I write for a, a US-based financial services company and 
I write general education pieces for them where I talk about investing in low cost index funds. And so I get paid by them. I write for the national newspaper here in Canada. I do freelance work for them. And of course, um, I end up getting royalties from the books that I've written. So I do invest. I'm typically investing uh, probably about on average, maybe once a quarter. So I do continue to add money to the markets because the money that I do end up getting from income, it exceeds the amount of money that I'm spending on a day-to-day basis. And what's next for you, Andrew? Because, you know, I see you traveling around the world. I see you go to exciting places. Uh, You've been to Costa Rica and you like to travel around in a camper van. I mean, the pandemic's probably grounded you a little bit at the moment. But what's your next plan? We would love to get to Argentina in our camper van. The last time we got to um, Nicaragua and there was a civil war and we spent 17 months uh, in Central America and Mexico traveling in the van. And what we would do is we would park it, um, corral a bunch of speaking engagements. We'd fly off to Europe or the Middle East or Asia for five or six weeks. And then we would go right back to wherever it was that we parked the van, whether that was in Belize or Mexico, and we would resume our journey. So I would love to just continue to do the same because it gives us great variety and a lot of adventure. And essentially, you live quite a frugal life with less possessions in them than possibly the rest of us. I mean, does this help you achieve your financial goals because you're not living the millionaire lifestyle? You might have the millionaire portfolio, but you're not living the lifestyle to match. Oh, and it certainly helped. Yeah, it certainly helped in the very beginning. Most absolutely, you know, but I, but I recognized that I didn't have to defer gratification at all. Because when you look at studies on people who are on their deathbeds, and you ask them, what, what do you regret? No one ever says that they regret not having brand new cars instead of used cars, or they would, no one ever regrets, you know, not getting a certain promotion back in the year 2035. The things they regret are the moments where they're spending or they could be spending time or they could have spent time with people they love, time having alternative experiences and doing wonderful things. And so the satisfaction when we look at happiness studies, they suggest that material items that we purchase don't enhance our levels of happiness at all, but time spent having experiences and time spent with people we love absolutely do so i would fully recommend if we want to call it a frugal lifestyle i probably prefer to call it um, it ends up being frugal but a, a lifestyle where you designate your purpose and you live purposefully towards whatever it is that will maximize your long-term happiness and contentment both now and tomorrow wise words indeed thank you very much for joining us today andrew It was my pleasure, Alice. Thank you so much. Thank you this week to Andrew Hallam. If you have a question you would like to ask us, send it to pf at thenational.ae. And remember, that's PF for personal finance. Please do subscribe to the podcast in your podcasting app to receive weekly updates. And also leave us a review so we know what you think. This episode was produced by Arthur Edison. I've been your host, Alice Haynes.